MFA writers. This past week, I was busy attending various writers' panels at AWP in Seattle. So today, instead of a new episode, I've got a re-release of a fantastic conversation from last season. This one features Taylor Bias of the University of Cincinnati, who successfully defended her PhD dissertation a couple weeks ago. Congratulations, Dr. Bias. If you all haven't listened to this interview yet, please check it out now. I'm sure you'll love it. We'll be back in no time with an all-new episode. Until then, you can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Taylor Bias. Taylor is a black Chicago native currently living in Cincinnati, Ohio, where she is a PhD candidate and Yates scholar at the University of Cincinnati and an assistant features editor for The Rumpus. She is the first place winner of the 2020 Poetry Superhighway, the 2020 Frontier Poetry Award for New Poets Contest, and the 2021 Adrian Rich Poetry Prize, and a finalist for the 2020 Frontier Open Prize. She is the author of the chapbook Blood Warm from Variant Lit, a second chapbook, Shudder, from Madhouse Press, and her debut full-length, I Done Clicked My Heels Three Times, forthcoming from Soft School Press in spring of 2023. She's represented by Rena Rossner of the Deborah Harris Agency, and today she's going to read a couple of poems for us. Thank you. Um, I'm going to just read two poems from Shudder, which just came out in March. And I'll start with, Your Husband Says Let's Try Something New After the Painting The Lovers by Renee Magritte. Your husband says, let's try something new after your anniversary dinner. A bit of Bordeaux still aging on the corner of your mouth. In the restaurant's dim corner, he frisked the top button of your dress undone, its plastic clicking against the gold wedding band, his hand a half-formed promise counting the dips of your spine. You offered yourself up right then, plated, drizzled with need under the table, your pantyhose decoration. His fingers dipped into the chocolate sauce on your plate, then paused at your bottom lip's altar, and you wanted to be the pen he signed the check with, an instrument to do his bidding. At home, he refused to be uncollared, untied, left in his cufflinks, said the night was about how far you could go without going or coming, said close your eyes. A few anniversaries ago, you opened a slim jewelry box and found a leather eye mask slumbering in velvet, 
so we can truly be ourselves in the dark as he slid it over your head. His body, a new body in that man-made night, a hunter gone prey to the beast he hoped he would become. Now he crowns you with the elastic band once again, the leather's edge biting a curve into the bridge of your nose. Imagine we're someone else, he whispers, guiding your hand to the gill of his boxers. A few seconds of clumsiness, teeth clicking, the choppy unzipping, your husband changing shape in your grip, your name changing shape in the air between the two of you. Imagine we're someone else. As he breathes someone else's name, ask another woman for mercy you will not give. Um, and then I will read um, probably my favorite from Shudder. And this is Resting Bitch Face. And the epigraph is from Spill by Alexis Pauline Gums. And it reads, how did you get here? What trumped up troop of slave ship sloop puts you here on my doorstep in your nastiness? Something about the set of my face says slave. Cracks sharp in its stank and slits you uncomfortable. And what do you make of me again? In that gas station parking lot, in the grocery aisle in its fluorescence, when you tell me to smile for you. You too pretty to be frowning makes a fugitive of me, shutters me closed for your business. You even smooth talk yourself into a lie. Say smile and mean relax, mean open, mean peel back, mean lights, camera, action, put on a show for me. Last time I smiled for a man, my teeth sparked white in the dark of his bedroom, like police lights in a rearview mirror. What could I afford with that currency besides his violence? Smiling has never bought me tenderness, never tendered me a love that let my face be bitch, and ain't that what you gonna call me anyways? Whether I thaw out for you or not, don't this always end the same? The bright you coax from my mouth, snuffed out as soon as I show it to you. Taylor, that was awesome. Thank you so much for reading those and thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm a fiction writer. And as I was reading, your husband says, let's try something new. I kept thinking about how it has a real narrative quality to it for a poem. And then I read about your background and how it's actually in fiction. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit with you. So when did you first start studying and writing fiction? Yeah, so I, I started fiction um, in my undergrad. I came into undergrad as a creative writing um, sort of major, and um, my focus was fiction. So all of my workshops, all of my main creative writing classes in undergrad were fiction classes. Um, so I took just about that entire four years to really get into fiction. And even my undergrad thesis was all short stories and what happened. And you can sort of see that in, um, you know, your husband, the poem that I just read, it's an ekphrastic poem. And I took an ekphrastic poem sort of at the end of my undergraduate experience. And it was the sort of bridge between fiction and poetry, um, that I fell in love with when it came to phrases, putting a story to a piece of art or trying to figure out what the, what the artist sort of saying. Um, and that was how I kind of made my transition to poetry, oddly enough, but it was, it was that bridge between 
this world of poetry, but also finding a way to still tell stories that really appeal to me. And, and as you can see, I'm still writing poems with, with heavy sort of narrative tilts, I think, because of that. <laughs> what about before undergrad? Like when you were younger, were you writing much? And what kinds of things were you writing? It's so funny because before undergraduate, I was, you know, really heavily just writing terrible poems. And that was sort of the main thing. I, I was never really um, writing a lot of short stories when I was younger. And so the choice to go into fiction in undergraduate, I feel like was maybe more of this is what feels easier. This is what feels like I should be doing. Um, and then I sort of got access to you know, kind of what I wanted to do mainly, which was, which was poetry. And I love fiction, but I think in the beginning, I just sort of went in assuming that, oh, you just, you just write short stories. That's like the thing. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, and I hadn't really had access to people who looked like me who were, you know, doing poetry as, as like, this is their career as well. Um, and having access to that in my master's was also really important and sort of life-changing for my own trajectory as a poet. So having like the background both in fiction and having written some poetry, when it came time to apply for PhD programs, was there a part of you that like didn't know which direction you wanted to go or were you set on poetry? By then I was pretty set. Um, I went into my, my master's after undergrad and I switched over to poetry for the master's and I had no doubt in my mind that that was what I wanted to do. Um, I also got a chance to do a summer long, like formal study, like a, a poetic form. And I was done. I was, I was absolutely hooked after that. And I had no doubt in my mind that I wanted to go on and, and study poetry for the PhD. You know, we mentioned like the narrative quality of your poetry. I'm curious in what ways you see your background in fiction influencing your poetry. You know, it's it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> <laughs> I find myself sometimes struggling to write poems that aren't telling a story. And you know, sometimes I just want to challenge myself to switch it up. Um, I think I can be a little long-winded because I want to tell stories all the time. And, you know, poetry is sort of the place where you're supposed to be succinct and you're supposed to lean into brevity. And so I find myself always grappling with this desire to tell and show every detail as you would in a story to sort of paint the picture and then the impulse in the poem to, to sort of cut things down and, and be more you know, sparse with my language. Um, so I, I find that it is a constant battle. Like maybe it's just my curse <laughs> as a writer for the rest of my life to, to constantly be bat battling those things. But I, I also think it sharpens or drastically sharpened my ability to, you know, create clear images. For example, I think my descriptions are really unique and I, I think I, I'm able to make my poetry really accessible maybe in a way that I don't think I might be able to otherwise if I didn't have a fiction background. So there are some, there are some pros and cons for yeah. sure. Like I said, my background's in fiction. So I was, I've just finished my MFA in fiction. And when I came into the MFA, I don't think I planned on taking any poetry classes, but through the process of doing this podcast, I talked to so many poets and fiction writers who said like how much poetry had influenced their fiction writing. So I decided to take a poetry workshop my last semester, not realizing that it was like an advanced forms class oh, that totally me. kicked my butt. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. 
So I think I, you know, I went in thinking, oh, I'll just write like some prose poetry. And instead, like I had to work in these forms, which in the end was really cool because like you said, it forced me to kind of be more succinct. It forced me to like not just lean on these things that I already knew and and totally get outside my comfort zone. And I think it helped my fiction in the end. So I'm curious what you think prose writers can learn from reading and writing poetry and vice versa. Absolutely. I, I think like the economy of language as, you, yeah. as you're talking about. I think also, you know, genre, is, I feel like everything is just changing so drastically. Um, I feel like everything is sort of mixing together and um, the boundaries sort of between genre are becoming blurred. I, I think poetry also encouraged me to like take risks in my fiction um, or to get more experimental in my fiction in ways that I don't think I had access to before. Um, I know in my undergrad, I was sort of writing like very traditional short story, beginning, middle, end, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, you know, after writing poetry for years and and feeling for some reason more permission to just do whatever I want on a poem, I, I sort of return to fiction and I feel less restricted in those ways. I feel more excited to try some new things, to jump around, um, to to play with time and, and to be like less linear. I think also that's another thing. Um, poetry has really, I guess, made me feel less protective of, of time and linearity in a really exciting way too. That was some of the feedback I got in the poetry workshop. My professor was Hadara Barnadov, who's like an amazing poet. And she was like, every time I'd turn in a poem, she'd be like, make it weirder, make it weirder, you know? Yes. And I think that carries over into my fiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Weirdness. Um, And and you mentioned you were like going into the, you know, class wanting to do prose poetry. And that's so funny. I talk to people about prose poems uh, which I also think is like another really wonderful bridge between poetry and fiction. Um, I'm always talking about how like you need to make it strange. <laughs> like prose poem needs some type of something that defies expectations, whether that's time or whether it's logic, like always making something strange in a prose poem. So I, I, I like that that is a, a sort of continuing thread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you told me that you've been leaning heavily into prose poetry for your current project. So I'd love to hear about that. Tell us about that project and what made you decide to focus more on prose poetry this time around? Yeah. So um, the work in progress of the sort of full length collection that I'm working on now, and that will ultimately be my dissertation um, is kind of a explosion of shutter. So shutter started as an ekphrastic chat book and sort of got completely redone in the process but I had this idea one day I said I'm just going to write an ekphrastic chapbook that that thinks about art and the male gaze and and how artists are commenting on that and in that process I started to write these persona poems in the voices of either the artist or someone speaking to the artist and because they were so conversational um they sort of naturally fell into a, a prose poem form. And then as I continue to write the project, the prose, the prose poem just felt very right for it. Um, there's also these, these sort of different poem series that are happening. There's a sculpture study series in this project. They're like these mini studies. And, it, and that also felt right because I feel like a lot of the work is thinking about 
you know, theory, a lot of it is thinking about, you know, or looking through the lens of like a scientific study and all those things tend to happen in these prose blocks. And so I'm also thinking about all of these other frames or lenses through which I'm, I'm looking at the poems or through which I'm trying to think about the male gaze. And so prose is sort of naturally working its way into the project and it's like 90% <laughs> prose poems right now, which feels very weird for me, but I've been having a good time though. That's so interesting. It's almost like, you know, you started out with that fiction background and when you moved to poetry, you had to get away from prose completely. And now you've kind of made this evolutionary, <laughs> you've advanced to a place where you can go back to prose and apply those things and it doesn't feel wrong in some way. You're not just like reverting back to fiction. It's, you know, you've advanced to the place where you can apply some of those skills you've learned to the prose. Yeah, I think the form, which, you know, I, I went very heavy into into poetic form for a while. And I, and I still am. I, I just started a sonnet this morning, my God. <laughs> but <laughs> I think, you know, one thing about the form is the discipline, too. And I think, you know, writing, you know, pantoums and sestinas and all that type of thing that, that really gave me a lot of discipline when it came to returning to the prose. I feel like I can't go on too long now because I'm, I'm so practiced and working in these small containers or these limited containers. Um, so I, I think form has a, a natural way of also sort of sharpening the knife. Yeah. And I think I went into that forms class thinking that like the forms would be uh, constricting in some way, but I actually found it to be the opposite by the end like by the end of the semester I was like writing duplexes where it's like you know you really only have like seven unique lines in the poem mm -hmm. right and it's like mm -hmm. with my fiction background where I'm trying to like hold an entire story in my head for better or for worse you know with <laughs> with a with a duplex you can't you just have to like let go and just like let the language kind of find you right Yes. Which I think is a yes. good lesson to learn for my fiction anyway. I don't want to say it's this, you know, the same for everyone, but for me, sometimes I get stuck in this kind of controlling mode where I'm trying to like control the story I'm writing. Like I have this idea of where it's supposed to go and that and then I cut off all these other opportunities where like the poetry allowed me to just like let go of that. And I'm hoping that, you know, I can pull that back into my fiction and apply that. Yeah, I, I think that that applies in poetry, too. There are so many times where I come to a page um, and I have this idea of where a poem is going to go or I've already thought up the ending or where yeah. I'm going to land. And, and the poem will very quickly humble me, <laughs> very quickly um, lead me in a different direction or the direction that it actually wants to go. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious to hear about your process a bit. While we were talking, I, I heard you say a couple of times that it just felt right that it needed to be a prose poem. So it like you had a feeling, like it was a feeling you knew it needed to be a prose poem. I was going to ask how you decide what form a poem should be in. Where do you usually start when writing a new piece? And at what point in the process are you settling on a form? Is there a process to choosing a form or is it more just a feeling thing? When it comes to form, I sort of have to decide before I begin, okay. I have to sit down and say, this is going to be a pantoum. Okay. This is going to be a sonnet. <laughs> um, if I don't do that, it's not, it will never be that thing. <laughs> I have to start it. I, I can't, I, or I, I don't want to say I can't, but I've never been the type of poet to write something in a block of prose and then say, okay, let's figure out how to put this into this other thing. Um, I tend to have a, a sense of 
what form is going to serve the content okay. of the poem um, at the beginning. And so I usually make that choice before I start writing. I guess the only thing is the difference between like, am I going to lineate this thing or is am I going to leave it in a prose block that will change sometimes. Um, and what I've actually started doing lately because I I'm becoming less protective of my first drafts. Um, I will write something either in the lineated form or prose form, and then I will put it also in the other form. So I will have it in both ways in a Google document and I'll sort of see what feels better. Um, and I've found that I, I'll find some really exciting opportunities or I'll find access to something that I didn't have access to in that original form by putting it in the other form. Um, so it's, it's become actually a fun practice of, of just like, seeing what's possible um, yeah. that I think is really useful. Sounds to me that a lot of it has to do with experience, right? The idea of like being able to sense the form and the subject, like which one's going to work best beforehand. That's just comes down to reading and writing a lot, right? It does. It does. I, I feel like over time I have a stronger sense um, of what's going to work. Like I can, I can think about a poem that I want to write and I collect notes and images and lines over time until things sort of start to speak to one another. So I kind of have an idea of, of what a poem will contain. Um, and I can sort of get a sense of like, okay, I feel like there's going to be some sort of like cyclical movement here. A pantoum uh -huh. would probably be really good, right. you know, um, or I'll get a sense of, you know, this is, this is going to be a poem that like doesn't have a lot to say. <laughs> so maybe a sonnet might be the good, you know, a good thing for this. And so I can hit that pivot and be out and be done with the poem. Um, so it definitely comes, you know, with time and just having written a lot of, a lot of the things and getting a sense of, of what's going to serve the content for sure. You also told me that the pandemic drastically changed your writing and revision process. So I'm curious to hear about this. How did, how was your process different before the pandemic than it is now? Well, for one, I was writing way, way more. <laughs> before the I pandemic? Was, before the pandemic, yeah. I was able to produce quite a lot of work. Um, like if anyone, any of my friends said, Hey, do you want to do a, a poem a day next month? I could say yes. And I could hit every single day and produce a poem every single day. Now, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but be, because my ability to produce, you know, work changed so drastically, the pandemic for me was a lesson in trusting that the poem is going to come to me when mm. it's time and it's difficult. Um, you know, we get impatient. Yeah. We start thinking about, you know, production. We start thinking about the publishing world and, you know, in a capitalistic <laughs> way. Um, we start thinking about money. You know, we start thinking about all of these different things and those things start to bleed into the process and start to give us all the stress and anxiety about not writing. Um, and I had to really come to terms with the fact that when I sit down and when I'm ready, it will be there. And that was very hard for me. And I, I think also in that process, I think before the pandemic, I did not revise a lot after the first draft. Like I, I tend to edit a lot as I'm writing. So by the time I finish the draft, it's pretty close to where I want it to be. I think now because time is just weird. And also I think I've 
I'm more in tune with just the process of writing because I want to say something and not because I want to publish something. Um, I'm much more willing to, I think, just play around with, with possibilities in my editing process. And it's less about making it a better poem, but just seeing the possibilities of if it's a different poem. And I think some really exciting things have been happening as a result. It's so hard to get to that point where you where you can feel like or know that when you sit down to write, it's going to be there. I feel like I've gone through so much. I've spent so much time feeling stressed and anxious when I'm not writing. Like, like I'm not going to remember how to do this. It's, you know, it's been like a week since I wrote something and now I don't mm-hmm. feel like I remember how to do it. Right. But I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last year as well is that like it's there when you when you go back to write and it's good to have that schedule but it's different for every person right and we can fall into mm-hmm. that like capitalist idea of producing 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 selling work um which mm-hmm. in in my experience just completely kills my stories. Yeah and I think it's also when you start to think about writing always in the sense of production we sort of lose sight of the writing and we're always thinking about an audience. Mm. And I always have to bring myself back to the fact that no one is privy to (laughs) my writing process. No one is privy to how many drafts I've gone through. Um, I could write a first draft of a poem and send it out to the world. And if it's accepted, no one's going to know that that's the first draft of right. the poem. Or no one's going to know it's the 100th draft. But we we have our own sort of perceptions about what we're capable of or, or what things are supposed to look like. I think it's also really freeing for me when I remember that nobody knows what I've gone through with this draft. No one really cares. Right. <laughs> um, right. um I, if I'm, if I'm, you know, staying true to the work, it's someone's going to like it. Someone's going to appreciate it. And also it matters that I like it. Right. I appreciate it. And right. that I feel proud of it. And that's, that's first and foremost. Um, so also removing that audience expectation from the actual process of writing is really important. You've experienced quite a bit of publishing success the last few years. You've got two chapbooks out and a full length collection coming out next year. I think it's only natural for people who have been successful for a long period of time to kind of forget what it was like before they were successful. So I wanted to ask you, since this has happened quickly, if you could reflect on that time just a few years ago when you hadn't yet published so much, like, Mm -hmm. did you expect this to happen? Did you have self-doubt? What advice do you have for writers who are in the place you were before this success? Did I expect this to happen? I, if you had asked me if I would be here (laughs) in this moment two years ago, I would have said no. A lot of, a lot of what has happened for me in these past two years has felt like luck. I mean, I I know that I I work hard and, but so much of this, so much of this industry is also about chance yeah. too. Um, it's about, you know, getting the things in the right hands at the right time. Um, when, when the, when the mood is right and when they're looking for that thing is so much, so many things have to align, you know, a lot of the time. So it, it, a lot of it feels like luck, but the, the self doubt and the imposter syndrome and the not feeling good enough, you know, I, it doesn't go away. I just think. I just think we get better at managing it maybe, or maybe we have like shorter stints of it. (laughs) 
But, you know, there, there are still days when I will, you know, hop on social media and I will see, you know, everyone, my timeline is full of people announcing their things and, and publications and books and awards. And, and I have, you know, my own things. And even so, it still feels like sometimes it feels like oh, I'm not doing enough. I, I think the nature of society and the nature of social media, you know, encourages a lot of comparison, which makes it hard sometimes. But I think as long as you're prioritizing your work and as long as you're staying true to your work in your vision, I think things will things will eventually fall into place if you're doing the work and if you're staying true to yourself. Because, you know, we're all different. And the fact that no one else can write a poem like me or the fact that no one can write a short story like you, for example, that's what that's what makes us us. That's what makes us unique. And that's what that's what people are looking for when they when they look for our work. So I, I think also staying true to, to the vision and to the work is just perseverance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of it is perseverance, I think. I mean, I keep going back to this idea that like, in the end, it's just about persistence, you know, just keep going, <laughs> just keep trying, keep mm-hmm. sending stuff out, keep writing. It is, it is the, the submittable declines, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna rack up, <laughs> but you gotta keep going. <laughs> All right. You brought up social media and you brought up one of the negative aspects of social media, but you, you know, you've built a fairly large following on Twitter. And I'm curious to hear you talk about how important you think that is for emerging writers to build an online following and to have that online community. Yes. The online community, I cannot stress enough how important that is. And I think it's always good to to sort of adapt to the changing nature of things. And I think social media is at the center of of publishing in a lot of ways. Um, But also just when it comes to finding opportunities, um, if you're wanting to sort of break into the publishing industry, you might, you know, find a call for readers for a mag on Twitter, for example, Mm -hmm. or, you know, people are always tweeting about when their publications open, you can see who is, publishing with publications and get a sense of, you know, they might like my work because this person is, is published there. So it becomes really easy to, to sort of connect the dots and get a sense of maybe where you even fit in, in that community. Um, but it's just another way to get your work and to get yourself um, into those conversations and into those different circles. I tell people all the time, I literally got my agent because I posted a a poem on Twitter and it was retweeted enough that it came across her timeline and she went to my website, read my things and like within 24 hours was like, hi, do you have representation? Because I tweeted a poem. Wow. Um, and, and, and things like that can happen and they do happen um, just because of, you know, whatever sort of community you've built online. So I, I think it's very, very important And it's been helpful. It's been extremely helpful for me. A lot of the opportunities that I've gotten in the past two years would not have found me if I was not, you know, as heavily involved or as as online (laughs) as I am. Well, I think it can be a little intimidating, not just being online, but also like the idea of building a following. So do you have any advice for like how to build that online presence that can be so helpful for a writer? I think just being a good literary citizen, you know, it's, it's one thing to have the social media to sort of boost your own things and to post like, Oh, I've got this poem published. 
But I think equally important for me, especially is using whatever platform I have to give other people space and other people's work a platform. And I think people notice when you care about the success of other people, when you're invested in, in what other people are doing and invested in other people's work. That's really important. Like, you know, community goes both ways. So I think that's just, just really important to, to show up for other people. Um, but it, it is intimidating and, you know, Twitter can be a very scary place. <laughs> it can be very ugly. Um, and, you know, when you have a lot of eyes on you in that way too, it can be stressful sometimes. So I, I think also just choosing your battles. <laughs> Twitter is, is, you know, Twitter is like not the greatest place to have these, these long intellectual conversations. Um, people, um, a lot of people are allergic to nuance on Twitter. <laughs> um, so, so also it's just, just being mindful of, you know, like what type of energy you're engaging in, what type of, you know, conversations you're welcoming in your replies, for example, because see, people will, People will just go on and on in your replies without you sometimes. Um, so it's it's also that, you know, that other side is, is just being very aware of what type of energy I'm welcoming into my sort of Twitter space. Um, what type of energy am I following? What type of people am I following? So it's it's also just being mindful of, of the experience that you're curating as well. Well, let's talk a bit about the creative writing program at the University of Cincinnati. So unlike most schools we feature, Cincinnati doesn't have an MFA program. Instead, they have an MA in creative writing, which they say prepares students for an MFA or a PhD. And they have the program you're in, which is the PhD in creative writing, a four-year fully funded program. So you're originally from Chicago and lived in Alabama for six years while getting your bachelor's and master's. So what drew you to Cincinnati and what did you hope to get from the PhD that you hadn't already gotten from the master's in creative writing? Yeah, I think, you know, by the time I got to the master's, I was really just starting to develop my poetic voice. I was really starting to figure out you know, what was even important to me when it came to poetry. And so, you know, at the foundation, of course, I just wanted more time to figure that out. Um, but when sort of deciding between the MFA and the PhD, I've, I've also always been really interested. I've had academic and scholarly interests in, um, you know, African-American literature. And I've also wanted the space to explore my scholarly interest as well. And so the PhD just naturally made more sense for me. Um, so Cincinnati was one of the three programs that I, I got into and I visited all three and you know, sometimes you just you just go somewhere, you visit a place and you do a thing and you just know that this is the thing you're supposed to do. And, and that was the experience I had when I visited Cincinnati. Um, you know, diversity was very important for me as a as a black woman going into academia, which we all know is can be a very harrowing, <laughs> harrowing process. Um, and so it was really important for me to be somewhere where I felt I would be supported um, where I felt that I could really pursue what I wanted to pursue and that I would be understood in all the ways that it mattered. And I made the right decision and I would make it again if I, if I had the opportunity to do so. Um, so yeah, it was, it was mainly being able to have that balance between the scholarly and the creative writing work that 
push me towards the PhD over the MFA. Which I think is the main kind of difference between an MFA and a PhD, right? The MFA is more focused on workshopping and the creative writing aspect where the PhD balances the two. So you say that you were excited about that, but was there any kind of like shock involved in going into a PhD program and having to take those scholarly classes? I think I'm projecting here. I would be... (laughs) 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 I think if I went into a PhD program, there would be a little shock involved. But... um. How was it doing those scholarly classes alongside the creative classes? Honestly, it enriched my writing, you know, getting to study the things that I was interested in. Also, just being able to have conversations about literature with people who are like minded and who are also in the program trying to do similar things to what you're doing. Um, you know, I was in literature classes with a lot of other poets and a lot of other creative writing students. So I think even also the conversations that we were having about literature were really unique because we were all coming to, to these things with our creative writing brains and we were seeing things, um, maybe differently from the, you know, literature students, for example. Um, but, you know, I, I was also taking literature classes in my master's as well. My master's was kind of like, similar in this in the balance sense um so i came into the phd kind of prepared for that balance a little bit because it was very similar to what i had already been doing in the masters the sort of end of the semester is a little (laughs) a little more chaotic (laughs) my spring semester of my second year the end of that semester was like top three one of like the worst times of my life just because of how much i had to do at the same time um, you, you sort of get to the PhD and a lot of your grade sort of hinges on those final papers at the end of the semester oh, right. that you have to produce. Um, and then you have like three to, to write yeah. at the end of the semester. Um, but, but it only allowed me to get closer and closer to, to my scholarly interests and what I want to study, which of course then led to my year long exam process, which was, you know, its own. <laughs> own challenge which we're going to talk about here in a bit but before that what what have been some of your favorite classes that you've taken oh yeah my my top favorite would probably be um, race drama and performance class i took with dr sherelle luckett Um, so we looked at plays and then a little bit of poetry um towards the end of our class as well and thought about performance it was a fantastic class and I think one of my other classes would probably be uh, feminist poetics with my professor Lisa Holden. That was that was also a really really exciting class. Those classes forced me to be a more careful and better reader of poetry, which then of course made me think more in depth about like every decision that I made. When it came to poems, you know, some a lot of times we come to a poem or a piece and we make decisions that feel intuitive a lot of the time. Um, but I think being in those classrooms and having to study work so closely at that level really forced me to start thinking about my own writing or to even, you know, approach my own writing with the same critical eye, which can be hard sometimes to like be critical of your own work. Um, but it's also something we're asked to do. Like, for example, defending your dissertation is about talking about all of these decisions that you've made and, and having to being able to have a conversation about why you've written this book the way that you've written it. Um, so I, I think 
it it definitely made me it hide my awareness of my own decision making when it came to my writing, which of course then made me just I think sharper. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the comprehensive exams now. So that's another difference between the MFA and the PhD <laughs> is most PhD programs require students to take the comprehensive exams after the first two or three years that you're in the program. According to Cincinnati's website, students take exams in two areas, one which examines texts through the lens of craft and another which examines them through the lens of literary history and theory. So for listeners who are considering a PhD, but maybe don't fully know what this exam process looks like, could you maybe walk (laughs) us through it a little bit? Yeah, so I am in the on the poetry track. So my craft list was poetry. Um, and then in, in particular, I chose to study uh, Black women's poetics from, you know, Phyllis Wheatley to current day. So that list consisted of 50 collections of poetry by Black women. And my second list was sort of an examination of erotics and wordplay um, in music and and how those things were sort of commingling and coming together across the same span of space. So it was sort of a, a historical and critical lens through which I was looking at those those texts on my first list. So then that list also had 50 texts on it that I had to read. Um, so in total, you're reading 100 texts over the span of the year. They don't all have to be books necessarily, <laughs> but it's still 100 texts. Yeah. Um, so you read all of these things, you you take good notes, I hope. And at the end of the process, usually in your spring semester, you um, select a, a sort of four day window. And the first part of the exam is the written part. So you have four days. Um, your examiners, your two examiners will each give you about four or five questions. You'll probably have to answer one or two from each one. And you have those four days to write your responses you turn your responses in at the end of those four days. And then within a week, you have to take the oral part of the exam, which is two hours in which you sit in a room or a Zoom room with your two examiners and a moderator that you selected. And they can sort of ask you any sort of question that they want about the responses that you've written or anything else on your list that maybe you didn't talk about <laughs> in your responses, which did happen. Um, and, and so then it's just that two hour process where you where you get those those questions and and then the whole, you know, the whole grueling process is over. <laughs> well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. It was it was very stressful, but by the t- by the time you get to the the exam process, like the actual writing the exams and, and doing the oral process, it's it's nerve-wracking, but it's also just like no one else has read all 100 texts right. on your list yeah. <laughs> in the same way that you have. Right. Um, and it's hard to believe because you're, you know, you're sitting in this room with your professors who have been teaching you for the past two years, but like you, you are the expert in the room, you know, and that was, that was something that I had to, to keep reminding myself to, to, in order to not panic <laughs> during <laughs> my Earl's process. In what way did you see the exam process, reading all of those texts, having to do the exams? In what ways did you see that affecting your creative writing? Oh, gosh. I So I was, of course, reading a lot about the erotics and wordplay, um, which I think I've naturally always had an interest in. But, of course, when you're learning about these 
ancestries or these lineages of, of what poets have been doing. For example, like one of the things I discovered while studying was like the lineage of like masturbation poems <laughs> in like Black women's poetics, which is something I had never really thought about or considered. Um, but you, you sort of discover all of these all of these ways that poets before you have been relating to one another and talking to one another. Cool. And then you want to, you want to jump into these conversations. Right, yeah. You want to be a part of these conversations. Um, so I, I found all of these conversations that I wanted to participate in and, and those started to creep into the project that I'm, I'm now working on, which it, it kind of naturally fit, which was really nice. Um, so yeah, I, i I found myself like, finding all of these gaps, I guess, that I wanted to, to sort of fill. Um, and not to say that they're like not being filled by other writers, but I, I just found myself wanting to jump in. <laughs> so I was looking on the website and it seems most students in the program are funded through teaching assistantships. And I know that you had the opportunity to teach creative writing. So what have you learned about your own writing from teaching it? Oh, that's a good one. I think in teaching writing what happens when I encounter students and this is of any age really um because I, I also teach high schoolers and then I also just finished teaching fourth graders <laughs> so I you know I'm all over the place but I realize that over time like the imagination gets eroded and when I teach you know college freshmen or, or high schoolers or whoever they just have this ability to just let their imaginations go and they're not bogged down so much by like logic and all of these other things that really, I think can inhibit the creative writing process a lot of the times. And so I, I think teaching always reminds me um, of the magic that really can happen. And that is supposed to be happening when we come to the page and, and we're being creative um, and it reminds me not to take myself so seriously. Um, yeah, kids are really wonderful in that way and bringing you back to bringing you back to magic. Kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about like learning to let go. Maybe it's not really about learning to let go. Maybe it's about remembering how to let go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's so hard. And, and when you're you're writing about serious things, you know, my blood warm is about race yeah. <laughs> and the shutter shutter and, and the project that i'm working on now it's about like this white patriarchal male gay so there are all of these serious things right. that i'm writing about and, and that you know everyone is writing about and it can feel like the writing process can feel so serious too um but i think also like it, it's really exciting as i discovered reading all, all of these collections for my exams it's also really exciting when you're when you're having fun, when you're having fun on the page. So good reminders. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier how like there was a, a moment, I think you said during your second year where you were like felt really overwhelmed by all the work <laughs> that you had to do in in the program. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit about cultivating a balance between getting your creative work done and the demands of academia, especially when you're doing something like comprehensive exams. Yeah. That's something I've, I've talked a lot with my my peers. Um, I I think when we come into these programs, well, first of all, the people that are in these programs, we are like 
oftentimes very type A people. <laughs> we're, we're very, you know, perfectionists. Like, and maybe this is all of us writers. I don't know. But we, you know, we have this, this personality where we want to get things right and we yeah. want to do things exceptionally well. Um, and, and that's sort of how all of us are. And we want to get everything done. We want to check all the boxes. And I had to realize very quickly that that is just not possible. <laughs> it is not possible to read every single page. Um, and, and the thing is like in the grand scheme of my entire life and my career, no one is going to ever really care if I read that entire article on that one theory concept that one time. Um, but what they might remember me by is the poems that I produced during this time. And it was, it was really just having to remind myself what I'm here for. I'm here in this PhD. Yes, I'm here to do the, to, you know, further my scholarly interests. But the main thing I'm here for, I'm in the PhD for creative writing, for poetry. That is that what comes first. And it, it became a matter of like every week just being like, pay the writing first and then figure out what else needs to be done. Like what we can't get through the week without doing in its sort of completeness. And then you sort of go down the priority list. You're like, okay, I, I can get away with maybe skimming this thing. And I can get away with maybe, you know, doing half of this thing. Um, you just, I just had to be very intentional about prioritizing and very intentional about paying my writing first. Well, I mentioned that most students are funded through teaching, but I understand that there are also funded editorial positions available at the Cincinnati Review, which is published th through the school and is a fantastic journal. How much do you know about those opportunities? Yeah, um, I actually was a summer editorial intern cool. um, last summer for the Cincinnati Review. So yeah, I'm going to my fourth year, my last year for the dissertation, I will be an editor for the Cincinnati Review instead of teaching. So I get to do it again. I'm very excited. Uh, yeah, we we are very involved in the selection process. We also get some copy editing experience. Um, we'll have some workshops on, you know, design. We just recently had a workshop on like InDesign and Photoshop and, and some sorts of things. Um but we do have a lot of free reign when it comes to the sort of projects that we might want to um, cultivate during our time as editors. Um, I'm really big on, you know, reviews. I, I definitely want to maybe make some space for chapbook reviews while I'm an editor because chapbooks don't get enough <laughs> love and I will scream about that forever. <laughs> um, but we, yeah, it's, it's really wonderful. We get, we get some really good, experience reading, making decisions on submissions, um, you know, learning how to be professional and like rejection and acceptance emails. Um, but also these other things like copy editing and um, the, these other projects that you can do on the blog, which, you know, you can, you can sort of start a review series and we do interviews as well. So you can get some experience doing that. Um, so it's, it's really great for getting that, you know, alternative publishing experience because I also am going on the job market. So it's, it's very nice to, to not only be able to teach, but to also, you know, have those different and varied editorial experiences as well. You mentioned earlier too, about um, one of the reasons you chose the university of Cincinnati was that it felt like a place where you would be heard that you would feel comfortable. So I was curious if you could talk a bit 
about the sense of community within the program. I mentioned earlier that the school also has an MA in creative writing. Is there some overlap in the classes you take? And is there a strong sense of uh, community within the creative writers at University of Cincinnati? Absolutely. Um, so with the, the MA and the PhD students, they will often be in classes together. So there's really no separation. So that that's very nice too, that they, they could sort of be together. I, you know, when I visited Cincinnati and I was, I was very nervous, um, just in general, but I remember, you know, there was a wonderful, wonderful young woman who is now the poet laureate of Cincinnati, Miss Yaley Kamara, Dr. Yaley Kamara now. Um, and I like, I like set eyes on her and she was like, I'm going to take you to, we can go get, we can get coffee or tea, whatever you like. And we can like have a, a very real conversation about this program and what it is you need. And if you're going to get it. And that was the sort of energy that persisted throughout that entire visit and throughout my entire time um, here at Cincinnati. I found a, a really fantastic community of readers for my work, um, my cohort in particular, like we made like weekly writing dates <laughs> our first year. So we were really being supportive of one another and creating that time to write. You know, my professors have been very encouraging, you know, at my examiners, they were really wonderful. They talked about my responses and they were like, we will help you turn they turn this into a book, you know, like that, those types of things that people obviously want to see you succeed um, and are, not only wanting to see you succeed from a distance, but are also willing to be a part of that and willing to do what they can to help you succeed. Um, it's, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be <laughs> where I am if I hadn't had the, the support from my peers and from my professors to, to keep writing and to, to get the work done. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gotten these books out <laughs> into <laughs> the world. That's for sure. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm really happy for you and happy that those books are out in the world. Before we go, I'm going to ask you everyone's favorite question, which is what's one thing you think the program does really well? And what's one way that you think they could improve? One thing I think the program does really well. Oh, they do so many things well. <laughs> <laughs> they do so many things well. I, I have really enjoyed my course offerings actually like i've i've had like a really a really good time in my literature classes even like not even just my um workshops we also have a a full manuscript workshop which is pretty sweet oh, and cool. very useful yeah. like we all got to workshop a full manuscript which i don't know if people are getting the chance to do that these days but like 10 out of 10 <laughs> would recommend um one thing i think they could do better i don't know i mean i could say this about all PhD programs, but just like pay your, pay your grad students more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like yeah. everyone. So, well, Taylor, you are awesome. This was a complete joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for stopping by and talking to me. It was great. Thank you for having me. I, I love, I love talking about, poem. like I'm, anytime anyone is like, you want to come talk about, poem? <laughs> like, is this a real question? Of course I do. <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it here. Thanks so much. Thank you.